Soul is simply a way of saying this animal suffers disconnects from meaning. This animal is a meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animal. And it's a symbol-making animal because symbols and metaphors allow us to try to talk about or stand in relationship that to that which cannot be talked about, that which cannot be understood. An example is being, what do we mean when we talk about beauty? What do we mean if we use the word God? What do we mean when we talk about the nature of anything? We're swimming in mystery, but we have the resources and the need to somehow stand in some approximate relationship to that mystery. Today's participant has been one of the more important individuals in my my education, and considering I've been at this a long time, I know he's also been extremely valuable for the education and learning lives of so many. His, his background as a professor really sets him up to be an individual who can communicate in a way that helps us integrate information that can be difficult to access. And it's really one of his gifts. So I'm, I'm overjoyed to be able to not only have this conversation, but present it in this format. I want to note a couple of things before I read his bio, and then I'm just going to get started. The music you're hearing is from Modern Nations my friends Toby and Nolan, and you can check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. If you like the podcast, and uh, I hope you do, <laughs> uh, y- you can support it by sharing it. It's so easy these days. You can uh, get on the SoundCloud account or uh, just send a link for the iTunes address. Uh, another way is, of course, to subscribe to the podcast. That's really helpful if you like it. Uh, also, review it. Um, if, if you're interested in learning more about it, you can check out all information on this podcast at thesacredspeaks.com. Thesacredspeaks.com. You can check out links in the liner notes of, uh, of either the SoundCloud account or the iTunes account. So I'm, I'm really excited to bring you Jim Hollis today. I'm going to read through his bio. James Hollis was born in Springfield, Illinois, and graduated from Manchester University in 1962 and Drew University in 1967. He taught humanities for 26 years in various colleges and universities before retraining as a Jungian analyst at the Jung Institute of Zurich, Switzerland, 1977-82. He's presently a licensed Jungian analyst in private practice in Washington, D.C., He served as the executive director of the Jung Educational Center in Houston, Texas for many years and now is the executive director of the Jung Society of Washington. 
He lives with his wife, Jill, an artist and retired therapist in Washington, D.C. Together they have three living children and eight grandchildren. He has written a total of 15, and I, I think now 16 books, um, and maybe um, more. I don't know when this was written, but he's written a lot of books. He's written a total of 15 books and over 50 articles. The books have been translated into Swedish, Russian, German, Spanish, French, Hungarian, Portuguese, Turkish, Italian, Korean, Finnish, Romanian, Bulgarian, Farsi, <laughs> Japanese, Greek, Chinese, and Czech. And, you know, enjoy this. This is like, uh, this, is, this is really fantastic. So uh, I'll leave it there. gives me an incredible pleasure to be sitting here with Jim Hollis, who's a, uh, been an enormous mentor and friend and colleague and uh, sat on my dissertation committee, so dealt with all of my uh, struggles as a, as a flailing, um, struggling academic working through the process. And, uh, and you were actually, Jim, my, my first professor in the Jungian Studies program that you helped bring you were integral in bringing to to houston as you were the director of the of the young center here in houston i am so overjoyed to be spending these moments with you thank you for being here you're welcome john pleased to be with you so i i, I want to start as i as i told you earlier I, you know this process for me is a personal one and it's an academic one as uh, i don't think those two are necessarily um able to be separated but i i'm my personal process is about looking into material of the sacred and the secular. And as I sit here today, I've got these stacks of, uh, of your books um, next to me. I think I, I, I've left some at home, but I've got about eight of your books. Um, I, I, you know, it's kind of an interesting experience to be able to have created that much text in one's life. If you would, would you share a bit of your own personal experience um, as an academic, as a um, as a teacher, um, as a Jungian analyst, starting from wherever you'd like to start? Well, I think it all began when I was in kindergarten, and um, <laughs> I, I began to realize that my teachers were offering a world that was bigger than the world I was exposed to at home in my neighborhood. And something in me intuitively gravitated toward that. I, I was uh, very excited by that. I was not one of those who dreaded going to school. I looked forward to it as, as something that was by and large enjoyable. And um, I, I consider that my teachers became my heroes, as well as a community librarian who early on saw a reader when she knew one. She said to me, uh, you don't have to stay in the children's section of the uh, library if you don't want to. You can go anywhere you want in the library, which I thought was an enormous privilege. And uh, she, too, was one of my heroes. So um, I, I always identified with learning. It was an inherently satisfying process and a developmental process. And frankly, it was um, a, a way of overcoming the limitations into which I was born, as we're all born into limitations of one kind or another. I mean, my father was taken out of eighth grade, literally, when the Depression came and set to work the rest of his life. He wanted to be a physician, but the fates wouldn't allow that, and he worked his life in a factory, and my mother was a secretary, and 
Um, you know, their, their lives were circumscribed by hard work, uh, duty, and virtually no expectations of, of the world, and very few expectations of a world larger than our immediate family or our immediate neighborhood. So for me, education was always, um, I won't say a ticket out, it was, it was a um, sort of fulcrum into a larger and more satisfying world. And um, so it, it led me ultimately into college, which was a new adventure for our family of origin. And at the end of college, I asked myself, what do I want to do now? And I really had no idea. So I thought, well, I might as well go to graduate school. And I did for another uh, five years. And uh, at the end of that, I thought, what do I want to do? And I thought, well, I still like to learn. So <laughs> the best place to learn was in the field of education. So I became a college professor. It was never a career goal. It was just kind of the next logical step. And I enjoyed teaching a great deal and was able to learn a lot about how you shape a class and how you work with the material and how in some way every class is a work of art. And some of it's planned and a lot of it uh, occurs on the spot. It's a spontaneous unfolding of a process. And then in my mid-30s, I found myself facing two realities. One, that I was getting tired of a conversation with young people. There's nothing wrong with being young. We're all recovering young people. Uh, <laughs> it was that there were certain kinds of issues and questions that I really wanted to address that at some level, emotionally speaking, experientially speaking, they were incapable of, of addressing. And I was always grateful if there was a second half of life person who came back to finish education, often a mother who had raised her children and now wanted to pursue her own career and so forth. Because I always felt, well, there's somebody to talk to in this class then. And uh, hmm. allied with the fact that I had a very serious depression at midlife. It started around age 33 and at age 35, I went to my first hour of therapy somewhat reluctantly, but that too provided an open door. And it led me uh, to pursue that process um, by ultimately going to Zurich for retraining. Although when I went, it was not with the expectation of ever leaving college teaching. It was rather saying, this is the next step of the journey. This will take it deeper and, and um, to places I couldn't imagine. And of course, it did take me to places that I couldn't imagine. And uh, after five years of that process in Zurich, I, I found myself, again, preferring the life of uh, the therapist to that of the academic. And for pragmatic reasons, when I returned to America, I continued to teach for a while because that's what paid my, my bills and that of my family. But um, I, I found myself, again, preferring the one-on-one -on -one in death conversation around the meaning of their journey. So as I look back on it, I, I'd say the one thread of my entire life was um, being drawn to learning. And, and learning in the sense of, um, you know, the, the, the inherent curiosity we have, I think, is, lies at the heart of our human nature. And it's best served when we, uh, when we feed it. And so to this day, you know, my vision of retirement, whenever that time comes, if such a time comes, would be I'd like to go back to um, colleges and take some classes in areas that I haven't been in before, because that love of learning is still there. And one of the reasons I appreciate the Internet, there's so many different ways of learning on the Internet that were not possible in the past.
and, and so forth. So that's a very long answer to a, a rather direct question. How, how did I get involved in what I'm involved in? And I, I would say in a kind of really sort of organic fashion, it was just at some level trying to decide to do what I enjoyed most at the time, and if possible, find a way to earn a living doing that. And, and since what I enjoyed was learning, how do, you, how do you in some way earn a living while enjoying what you're doing? And I certainly had enough other jobs ranging from factories to digging ditches to all kinds of things. Uh, I survived in Zurich by teaching uh, English over there um, that, that I, I realized they, they were not satisfying to me. So any way I could be around education and anywhere I could be around the learning process um, was, I think, a kind of double payoff, and not just economically, but uh, in terms of that sense of satisfaction. The one thread that I think is so interesting about what you're talking about with your parents is your, your, your comment about hard work and duty, you know, and, and of course, factory work. And that, was there something in that relationship that created in you the, 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 the drive to, to learn or to, uh, to engage your curiosity? Well, yes, I think two elements. One was I was surrounded by the work ethic. I mean, that work equaled survival. Work equaled, in a sense, doing one's life in a responsible way. So there was never any sense. When I was 16, for example, what I wanted to do was, was play baseball. And my parents said, it's time for you to go to work now. I was legally old enough to work, apart from odd jobs around the house and neighborhood, but to actually go to work. So I've really worked for, for an income ever since I was 16 years old. I'm now 77, so what's that, 61 years, I guess, I've been working. And most of the time, the work was enjoyable. Many times it wasn't, and I knew the difference. So uh, the, other, the other piece of that was, I think, the importance of uh, discipline. Um, discipline is so important. You know, people think, for example... Well, it must be easy to sit down and write you since you do it all the time God. or easy to teach. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not. And the only time I ever have the luxury of writing or putting together a new class or, or lecture or something like that is at the end of a long work day. You know, I don't have those kinds of uh, moments of, of leisure where it's easy to, to do that. And, and so f for me, that's just part of the structure and meaning and purpose of my life, that it is in, in some way devoted to something that matters to me. I mean, I, I could sit and watch television all night, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's not satisfying to me in any way, um, or, or other such diversions of which there are so many. I interviewed a, uh, a, a, a wonderful woman a couple of weeks ago who is studying the early monastics, and it it, it, it appears that that's something that's so important um, when you're on this kind of life journey, pursuing something that's of value, is to have that kind of discipline. And some of these, a couple of things that you're talking, education, discipline, duty, uh, those are threads that, that really emerged in the monastic lifestyle. And I, I, I know you'll agree with me there, because I, I think so often the people that I work with are really struggling around finding discipline. Mm -hmm. and just, just to, I, I, I want to return back to your, um, to your personal story, but I, I am curious when you come up against that in people, 
when they're struggling mm-hmm. around discipline. How do you frame that for them? How do you all engage that? Sure. I, I think what I would say to them is if you find something that truly matters to you, the discipline is easy because that's the way you clear away the space and energy to, to pursue what you find valuable or to value what you say you value. And how do we know we value it? Because there's a sense of reciprocity. When you invest in that endeavor, whether it's, it's the work of hands or it's the work of mind or the work related to other people, whatever the circumstances, you have a sense of purposefulness in it, a sense of satisfaction and meaning. And you don't invent that. That arises out of the authenticity of the encounter. And if that's not there, then don't do it. You know, I could be a disciplined TV watcher, but I'm not because I don't find satisfaction in it. Uh, nothing wrong with TV. I occasionally would watch something, of course. But I'm simply talking about if if something matters to you, then why wouldn't you in some way devote at least a part of your life to it? And if it doesn't matter to you, figure out what does. Because I think there's something inherent to each of us that's not only curious, but it's hungry. And that hunger is for meaning and purpose. And you don't necessarily find it, you know, acquired from someone else. Um, it's not necessarily a transferable experience, but, you know, in, in a sense, my, my parents didn't have the luxury of saying, well, what means something to me? They had to work with what they had and in the, the harsh way in which they had to do it. And I, I think about that every day and, and, you know, consider that education was one of the privileges I had that they didn't have. And I'm very grateful for that. It was in some way the avenue out of those limitations, and I knew it. It was never about making money or, or being important in any way. It was, it was always about, does this mean something to you? Is it, is it valuable? And if it isn't, change your life. What, what I find extraordinary in so many people is that what they're doing with their lives um, really doesn't work well for them. It doesn't serve them. And then you think, well, okay, so change that. That's when you get into the analytic problem. All right, well, what blocks the change? That issue of lack of permission that I've talked about so often in books, that most of us don't have permission to fully live our own journey because we learn early. You know, if you want to be acceptable, if you want to have your needs relatively uh, valued, if you want to fit in with people, here are the conditions. You meet the conditions. And in meeting those conditions, those adaptations that are necessary at the time, um, there's a price. And what happens is you get, you get separated from your own inner voice. You get separated from your own reality. So many times people will honestly answer the question, well, I just don't know what interests me, or I don't know what I really want from my life. And I think that's a byproduct of that sort of numbing over the decades of adaptations till we lose contact with our own truth and and we live separated from our own souls if you will and that's the deep pathology of most people's lives you know it doesn't show up in the psychiatric manuals because more people suffer from a disconnect from meaning than any other cause and and the question of meaning is not even addressed as you well know in the diagnostic manuals it's not even addressed as a category of, of disorder. It's, and yet it's so systemic. It's, it's the problem of our time in some way. 
And, and, and in looking at that, you'd have to say, all right, I mean, do you care enough about your own life to make a change? Do you care enough about what this journey is about? I mean, it's a helpful thing to be reminded from time to time of our mortality. You know, I'm not here forever. You're not here forever. Directly, we know that, but what is the practical implication of that? Well, whatever you want to do or experience in your life, this is it. You know, here's, here's the opportunity. And if the opportunity doesn't present itself, go fight for it. You know, make it happen over time. And, and it sounds so simplistic. And yet that kind of sort of radical commitment to the conduct of one's own life, rather than living something that's received from our environment or our family or our time, seems such a, such a gulf to, to cross, you know, for so many people. Now, a good, another example of that, I'm seeing a number of people right now who are recently retired. And, and these are mostly males at the moment, no, not exclusively, who have no sense of what they want to do with their life. In other words, the structure of their work and the responsibilities and those definitions um, sort of answered who they were every day. You know, the bell rings, you get up and you do what you're supposed to do. And then suddenly you're free to do your life. Well, what does that mean? And what I found is when there's been no preparation for something like retirement, the person usually is like going off a cliff. Person might think, well, I'm gonna play golf every day. It's gonna be wonderful. Well, they do that for two or three months and then they find, you know, they're bored. Uh, they, they find there's no energy there. There's nothing developmental. So the, this issue of sort of somewhere along the line, figuring out, if this doesn't speak to your deepest reality, then find what does. Again, sounds so simple, but that often occasions large choices, large changes, large consequences. And, and we're all terrified of the large at times because our safety, security, well-being uh, in some way was derivative of fitting into small places. And, you know, the biggest shadow issue from a Jungian standpoint is not that we're so evil, it's that our lives are, are so small compared to, you know, what they could be, psychologically speaking. I don't mean in terms of the, you know, the values of the world, I'm talking about in terms of the values of our own soul. That's why Jung said, as you recall, uh, we all walk and choose too small for us. That's the quote that got me into this. Um, it's the Robert Johnson quote I know that you read in my, in my paper, uh, that we do two things when we project our shadow onto the other. One is we burden them, and the other mm -hmm. is we, we uh, sterilize our own potential, our, our own possibility. Yeah. yeah, we disown something in ourselves. Yeah. And your own dissertation on what does it mean to be a, a celebrity, you know, and what, what both the burden of being the recipient of all those projections on yes. the one hand, but what say about the people who are disowning their own, own accountability to their own soul, to their own lives, ultimately to their own children. That's why Jung's comment that the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent is, is properly so haunting. Just saying, what my responsibility is not to be the perfect parent, as if that were possible, is to live my journey as authentically as I can, so that those who follow me, in some way, have a larger imaginal frame in which to live theirs. Well, th this brings up a question. 
to use Jungian terminology, I think about dream dreams, you know, is this shadow or is this some kind of guide? And I, I think, I think, I think about people that I'm working with currently that may be struggling with purpose, the idea of purpose. And it, it tends to come down to, am I doing the right job? Am I with the right partner? Um, how, how do I know? And and I, I, I think of Joseph Campbell's, uh, really misunderstood comment about follow your own bliss. And and then of course I think about this figure I know you, you can speak to, which is Don Juan. And I, and I wonder about that, you know, because one from one perspective, one says, well, I'm I'm ecstatically I'm following my ecstasy and I'm following this kind of feeling of love and adoration. And in the other, I'm I'm never really uh, opening up to the possibility of settling. And I don't mean settling in a negative way. I mean, settling into something. Sure, so sure. How 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 are we to know in and this is of course being very simplistic but how are we to know is this the right job or not well first of all when you're young you don't have much of a choice you have to figure out a way to earn a living and we all make efforts in that direction good faith efforts but then along the way uh, no matter how well one is paid or recognized there's some part of the psyche that says but, you know, it, it takes more than money to make this job something you want to go, go to. And it's at that moment that the soul is knocking on the door. You mentioned Don Juan, for example. I mean, that's, that's a complex. That's not an achievement. That's an addiction. Yeah. That's, that's someone who, who has not yet tumbled to the fact that what he's looking for, he'll never find in all those transient relationships. He's, he's, he's desperately driven by a core anxiety, and he doesn't know. He thinks it's desire, but it's an anxiety that's driving that. And, and the compulsion that owns him is, is his um, imprisoner as well. And so, you know, what, what he would find so difficult is coming to earth with a concrete person, uh, a woman, let's say, with whom he creates an ongoing, caring relationship with all of the pushes and holes that come out of ordinary human relationships and be able to work those through. I mean, that's that's where ultimately the satisfaction will be found, but he doesn't know that. So he, he's a prisoner of a kind of, of um, sort of occupying a, a, a idea, if you will, a complex that, that drives him. And so the, you know, the puer eternus, as, as the Jungians call it, is really the eternal youth, the playboy, who, who in some way remains superficial, frightened, always adrift, and um, never able to be grounded in a, in a positive way. I just, I think of so many, that, I, I have two, two directions, of course, I, I, I I want to go into depth psychology because I think that's that's kind of w- this what picks up on this thread is that how are we to relate with these forces that exist in us? And w- w- would you mind speaking, I think, in general terms about what depth psychology is and how it functions in um, in your own analytical practice in your own life? Well, first of all, depth psychology. Um, is a recognition that we are more than our behaviors, which we are, more than our mental processes, which we are, more than our biological and pharmacological processes, which we are. And what more are we? Well, that's elusive. And, and that's where the, the concept of the psyche comes into play. I, I've often said to various groups of psychiatrists and psychologists, 
know, the problem with most modern psychologists left the psyche out, which is really the, the organ of meaning. Again, it deals with that question of meaning. And so deaf psychology is, in a sense, to be found in those moments when one says, you know, I've done all the right things. Why is it not feeling purposeful? Why is it not feeling right within me? That's the opening of that door to an exploration of the unknown. Because the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. And therefore, I cannot literally talk about it. But as I begin to probe that kind of question, I find myself going more deeply into the mystery of my own psyche. And I come to realize, for example, I mean, one of the ways I would put it, in the first half of life, we have to develop enough ego strength to sort of meet the world on its own terms. What do my parents want from me? What does the teacher want from me? What does the employer want from me? What does the partner want from me? What does the state want from me? And sort of mobilize what we call a mature response to those you know, realistic expectations. Second half of life, the, the real question is, what does the soul want of me? That is to say, if I have in some way achieved a functioning social identity and set of strategies that manage my daily life, is that all I am? <laughs> a series of learnings, adaptations, behavioral strategies, and so forth. And, and the, again, the unspoken question is, why am I here really and in service to what? And, and then the, the project of the second half of life is to discover, in a, in a way, what is worthy of your further sacrifice. In other words, we have to sacrifice something of our truth in those necessary adaptations. It's not like we can avoid them. But then we're living an adaptive life, not one that's coming out of our own authenticity. In the second half of life, you have to say, what is worthy of my conscious sacrifice in the second half of life? And that's where, you know, disciplining myself to engage in these deep conversations hour after hour after hour every day and writing or working or doing something else at night to prepare for that is, is a voluntary sacrifice. You know, a sacrifice is something that makes sacred. And it's sacred because it's honoring that deep sense of purpose and meaning inside. Because I can't think of anything more engaging and more honorific than sharing people's journey as we do in the therapy process. And it's not something I could have imagined as a child, but I imagine as a child is playing center field for the New York Yankees, but the gods gave the, the body to do that to Mickey Mantle, not to me. And today I'm grateful I, I didn't trade places with him. Um, the point being simply, in the second half of life, what is worth your sacrifice. You get to choose it now. You don't have a choice when you're young. You have to somehow sort of fit in and deal with the circumstances over which you have no control. Uh, in the second half of life, and it, the second half of life begins when you really understand that that is up on your plate and you can't avoid it anymore. At that point, you have to say, all right, what is worthy of my choice? And <clears throat> how do I devote myself to it? How do I prepare myself to it? Because in my own life, of course, as I mentioned, I, I wasn't necessarily planning to change careers. I still think of myself in the field of education primarily, but in its, its modalities. But I, I knew that I had to sacrifice money, time, effort, and, and comfort 
uh, to serve something that seemed so important to me that I couldn't let go of it. In that regard, it's, it's not unlike you know, a religious calling. If you have a religious calling, it supersedes, you know, the callings of your complexes. <laughs> it supersedes what your your parents want for you. It supersedes maybe what is endorsed by your, your cultural setting. And and the price of doing that is often very severe. But then what is the price if you don't? And there the, there's that nexus where the ego gets crucified often and has to figure out it's not my my plan or it's not my consciousness or it's not my strategy is here it's it's what is what is wanting to enter the world through me which is quite a different understanding of vocation and we think of vocation as vocatus vocal to be called it's like what is your calling as a person this may be the way you are living or this may be how you function as a parent or as a citizen but what's your calling as a human being you know, um, not not again to win the favor of the world, but in terms of serving something that has come to you, uh, for you, whether from nature, divinity, it doesn't matter where, it's that, that part of you that, that Jung says has all of the markings of, of a religious cult. Well, you said the word sacred. Of course, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm uh, if you could, could you define that sacred? And then you also said ego and complex. I made a comment in the last class that I was teaching that um, I still hear these terms and another way that it's framed and I'm learning every single day. And I find that to be one of the most amazing things about this, having received the kind of the, the cultural um, you know tip of the hat as far as the, the stripes one gets when one goes through the academic process. But it's almost like it just prepared me for a, a, a new world of knowledge. Um, so yeah. everybody has their different take on it. What's, what, what is the sacred? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I think there's a difference between what we might call a horizontal vector and a vertical vector. Now, as an American, if I say to you, another American, 1776, I haven't just pulled out a random number. I haven't pulled out a, a number that is, you know, that follows 1775. I've pulled out a number that, if, if, if that were all it were, it would be, you know, horizontal use of numbers, one following another. Right. It's something that, as Americans, lifts you out of time and space and links us with our ancestors, links us with a set of ideas, links us with a cultural heritage. It gives that vertical dimension, in other words. It's sort of like the difference between society and community. Societies are formed around purposes. A society can be formed to teach X, Y, and Z, or can be formed to clean up the neighborhood. And societies are fairly fragile. When their purpose is finished, they tend to dissolve, or they, um, you know, they're, they're buffeted by other forces that wear them down, etc. Uh, a community always has a vertical dimension, so that in that vertical dimension, I've lifted out of my own isolation and put into a different frame of reference. So if I say 1776, again, not a random number, but it lifts you out of this time and place for a moment into a timeless, what is the American experiment really about? What is this journey? What is this unfinished business about? Or you have experiences, you know, you, you walk into the Museum of Fine Arts across the street and, and you, you're touched by a particular painting. Someone else is not. 
but something in that painting has linked up with your own soul and lifted you out of the ordinary frame of reference that says, all right, here is a frame on which are oils arranged in certain ways that may or may not be pleasing, but leave you cold and, and untouched. And, and yet another arrangement of the same materials touches something and moves you in profound ways. It's that moment that you have that vertical dimension. You know, you're sort of lifted out of the normal frame of reference and, and are brought into an affectively charged um, experience of something larger than just that moment. So a, a painting or a piece of music or, or other artifact life can in some way link you up with with the transcendent. That is to say, what transcends the ordinary, you know, subjective limits of, of your own, you know, field of experience. Well, that brings up another term, actually. <laughs> I wonder what you say to, to critics, you know, because we, we, in this tradition, we border on uh, the, the, the religious, and mm -hmm. you had said to me a long time ago around, you know, God language, using God, and we were talking about numinous, using the term numinous. What do you say to the critic who, who takes, a, a, you know, what we would call a materialistic or scientific view, and you, you use terms like, you know, transcendence and religious, and they kind of roll their eyes and say, what is that junk? You know, that's just mumbo jumbo. I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. you have that in your practice. I know you have that in your talks. What what comes up for you in those moments? Well, first of all, right, uh, I, I don't um, balance grape in the direction of such critics. I, I, I would say, in fact, your core has a, a spiritual dimension to you. And, and, and spirit has to do with the quickening of the energy within you. And certain things quicken that energy, certain things depress it, certain things oppress it, certain things direct it in channels which are not in, in your larger interests and, and so forth. So, you know, you're swimming in, you know, <laughs> meaning charged uh, issues in any given moment. And if you fail to pay attention to that, and if you think it's all about correcting your behaviors and, and therefore having different outcomes, which is a truth, but it's only a partial truth, then you're ignoring what gives depth to your journey. And, um, you know, too often, unfortunately, people associate the word religion or, or spirituality um, with, with institutional life, which they've yeah. you know, been burned out of somewhere historically. And, of course, the diminishing power of those institutions in, in Western culture is, is notable and increasing. And, um, you know, therefore, you have to sort of find other terms which allow people to uh, approach, and you use the word numinous there, which is a, a term that Rudolf Otto had made uh, well known, um, and it comes from a verb that means something that nods or beckons at you. In other words, something touches you in a way that might not touch somebody else, but having been touched, it is about you and for you and has meaning for you. So again, if you happen to see a particular painting that touches you, then the numinous is present and and must simply be respected. Uh, I often have used a, a poem by Rilke to illustrate what the numinous is, and it's a poem called on the, Arca on the Arcade Torso of Apollo, and it's about a person describing 
an ancient Greek statue, and it's weather-beaten, it's been through, you know, time and, and pressures of various kinds, but somehow, you know, the human spirit entered that stone and has rendered it luminous, so it's, it's touching the viewer, and, and he's looking at this and describing the statue in some detail, and then has this peculiar feeling that as I look at it, something in it is confronting me, looking at me. And then the poem breaks off in an elliptical pause, dot, 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 and then there's a non sequitur that follows. In other words, there's just a line that's inserted afterwards. After having said there's something here that is looking at you, the poem says, you must change your life. And I remember reading as a young person and knowing it was important, but not grasping what it meant. And I think what Rilke was getting at is when the, the human spirit enters that stone, it renders it numinous. That numinosity confronts a person, you know, centuries later in his smallness and says, and this smallness sees through you. Now, you must change your life, you see. You must step into what matters to you. You must step into your own, you know, engaging in the investment of spirit and the material forms all around you. God, that, that, that hit me right in the face. Um, so Rilke, what you quote him often, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, Rilke did not go into any kind of analysis. That's correct. And mm -hmm. p part of what I understand was going on there is the belief that it would take away the demons. That's what he said. Yeah. And um, I don't believe that's true, but that's what Rilke said. And I, I think it's fair to say Rilke probably explored the human psyche profoundly as an yeah. artist in the yeah. same that Jung did as a psychologist. I mean, they're working through the same uh, territory. So uh, there's no no question that, that Rilke had um, very deep and penetrating insights. And um, I mean, for example, <laughs> his, no one has written more sensitively about love and about relationships. And yet he himself was, was almost incapable of sustaining relationships. He had a terrible, invasive mother who wanted a little girl instead of a little boy. She treated him as a little girl, and uh, she just constantly invaded his space and dominated him. And he said once, I could not love women because I could not love my mother. She sort of cleared out that territory of possibility for him. And yet there's something uh, in the pathos of Rilke that he wrote such beautiful essays and, and poems about the nature of intimate relationships. And, you know, he was married, he had children, uh, he had multiple affairs. The point simply is that uh, he had a profound understanding, and yet he was always in some way uh, struggling with uh, the demon of his own childhood past and how it continued to impose itself uh, upon, you know, every new relationship. So I know you speak about poetry a lot. I think of three poets that I've, t two in particular, Rilke is kind of a springboard to these other two, um, Blake and Yeats. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a, a lot of times poetry seems, you know, we, we grow up learning, you know, these kind of eight lines and 
reflections, but as I've, uh, uh, Blake in particular, as I've been getting deeper and deeper into Blake, there's an entire cosmology behind what Blake is doing. And, sure. and then, then, I f then I find Yates is the same thing. Same as Yates. And these, these people are working through psyche in a very different way. Yeah. yeah. The first article I ever published was a, an analysis of the comparative philosophies, psychologies, philosophies of history between Yeats and Jung. And again, Yeats in quite different channels, who was working through occult societies and yes. so forth, and his own intuitive vision, um, produced very analogous concepts to, to Jung's more scientific investigation. Again, because they're working through the similar territory. And, of course, the problem with most of us get ruined on poetry, and I, I was among them as a child, you know, where poetry is either something, you know, deliberately opaque and, and a kind of riddle, and, uh -huh. by the way, you're not smart enough to understand it, uh, or, or it's prettified um, philosophy, bad philosophy, sentimental philosophy, yeah. and uh, in, in sort of rhymes and meter. And, you know, people walk away with a sense of, of disdain for it. So it's it's why often I've taught poetry in later life, to sort of like, if you can sort of forget what you've ever experienced in poetry, you might actually find there's something there for you. And even then I'd have to pick the poets because there are poets who really speak to the universal dimensions of human experience, uh, ironically often through their own particular lives and their stories. Um, and, and then for them, people are saying, oh, I hadn't realized this was here. I didn't realize this was possible. In the same way that Shakespeare, you know, high school teachers mean well when they impose Shakespeare on students, but they're just not ready for it. Right. And for most people, it becomes uh, traumatic territory. And then to come back later and, and realize how much depth and richness is that is. So it's, it's like Shaw saying, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Well, much education is wasted <laughs> on the young. And it's not without good intentions. I, I truly understand that, you know. Well, uh, you, you, you taught um, English literature, correct? I taught a little of everything. I always taught in humanities programs. Uh -huh. And my, my doctoral dissertation in the first go-round was uh, on Yeats. And it was a Jungian perspective on Yeats. And it was on the tension of opposites in, in Yeatsian um, psychology and, and arts. And also played out in his life as a person in, um, you know, troubled uh, Ireland. And um, I always was also members of the philosophy and religion departments and, and also the psychology department. So I always taught in schools where there was a, a general studies program because I was just never satisfied with, you know, disciplinary limitations. Uh, another area that I taught a great deal was, uh, you know, the sort of the Western literary and philosophical tradition, because it was really about the history of ideas as much as anything. So I, I, I would say philosophy played as large a role as uh, literature did in all of that uh, early years. That hits. Uh, that's what's so fun about this project is I'm getting to talk to, you know, religion professors, philosophy professors, people that are in all kinds of different arenas. And I, I find the humanities to be such an important arena and, and that is reducing. I mean, I think I read recently from like the seventies, maybe 20%, 17% of degrees were in the humanities. And now it's something like 6% of degrees are in the humanities, all, all maneuvering over to 
um, sure. computer science and engineering and um, what, what do you think that's about? Well, unfortunately, it's uh, the domination of, um, you know, economic motives, number one, and a culture that has uh, materialized the human journey so much that one looks at the various ways by which not only can one earn uh, money, but also be, uh, you know, in a growing and developmental field. And, of course, what the humanity speaks to is many things. How, how we shape our ways of thinking, how we, how we deal with conflicts, how we explore the universalities of the human condition. I wish, you know, Plato said the only people appropriate to leadership are the philosopher kings, only those who have had a deep grounding, you know, in ideas, and that is to say, not abstract ideas, but ideas about the nature of life, the nature of um, human psychology and so forth. Only those persons are, are really able to be wise enough to make appropriate decisions for the people. Instead, we, we have so many uh, people who are, in my view, ill-educated. If I was emperor of the universe, which I'm not, not yet, um, <laughs> I, I, I would insist that everybody major in liberal arts yeah. Because what are they? They liberate. Liberate you from what? The chains of ignorance, uh, the limitations of your imagination. And, and I, everybody majors in liberal arts. And then after that, you go two years of specialization in whatever field you want to go into. You know, if you want to be an accountant, here's two years in accounting or whatever years it takes. But don't confuse the sort of education of the human spirit and the desire for learning and the sheer delight in understanding something. Um, with how you earn a living. And we've so fused those together that, um, you know, it just dominates. In Texas, where you're sitting, the, the, the towns have no problem spending 50 to $75 million on the football stadium, and they're cutting out the arts, and they're cutting out languages, and they're raising children who will be ignorant and culturally illiterate and will not do well in the world that is already present and increasingly to be in their face. And they're not serving the children by doing that. And I happen to like football. That's not the point. It's the point <laughs> I'm saying it's the unbalancing, you see, yeah. of, of our culture that is, is the price here, and it leads to unbalanced people. Well, if we go back to Blake, and I, I'm not as familiar with Yates, but um, that's the his enormous critique of what was happening with the rational movement really impacted me. And I think we're living in this legacy of that shift uh, when, when things became so concrete and material. Yeah. Do, you, do you think it is, I mean, I struggle with this sometimes because I, I tend to think, okay, yeah, that had to happen. You know, the scientific revolution, you know, we had to, the scientific method is absolutely important and we really need to have a system uh, a process. Uh, and, and by the way, let me, just, let, me in, let me just insert here. I would include the sciences in the liberal arts. There's nothing here that's opposed to science. Scientia means knowledge in Greek. So why wouldn't we want the knowledge of biology, of physics, of chemistry, and math? All of these things are important. That's part of your liberal education. Plato inscribed over the entrance to his academy. Um, let no one ignorant of geometry enter here. He meant that because for him, geometry was the explorations of the archetypal relationships between forms. 
and a proportion and distance and sequence and profound ideas that geometry helped us visualize and embody. And to understand philosophy, he felt you needed a sense of that, what we might call awareness of archetypal imagery. So in, in talking about the liberal arts, I'm not just talking about, you know, literature and music and so forth. Right. That's, that's important. I'm talking about, you know, the breadth. For example, when I went to college, <clears throat> it was at a time when they sort of wisely, I think, insisted we take intro to everything. And I, I never enjoyed economics, but I, I walked into, as a child from an almost illiterate family, walked into my first intro to music class. And I, I realized for the first time, there's some music I'd never heard before. And it's not so bad. I walked into an art class, intro to art class, because I was required. And I realized, you know, this is fascinating stuff. And when I was um, uh, a junior, I was uh, editor of a college newspaper, and I, I went to New York City on a, for a, uh, a conference on journalism. And I stole away from the conference. I went to two places, two temples, Yankee Stadium and um, the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I would never have darkened the door of an art museum if I hadn't taken that class. And I took it my sophomore year, my junior year, I went to voluntarily to art museums because it hooked my imagination. It doesn't mean it should hook everybody else's. I'm just saying it hooked mine, and I'm grateful. And well, that's what I think cutting off from our children when we say you don't get this wide range of, of sort of the human experience. Well, the word that's come up a couple of times is imagination. And I think about Sean and his his work, and I spoke to him, um, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. I, I think mm -hmm. in my office, I have to spend time, and, and, I, and I, 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 I love this, I actually love the opportunity, I don't mean that in a, a negative. I, I get to spend time defining the word fantasy and imagination, because people have so often written that off as, oh, you're just imagining, or there's uh, mm -hmm. it's it's just a fantasy, or or the word fantasy immediately intimates something about sexuality, as in a sexual fantasy, and they kind of blush. And, and mm -hmm. I I think that's that's what we're getting at here is is the is well I, maybe there's a question here. Um, where does that happen that we end up sacrificing our capacity to imagine, or at least consciously? Uh, yeah. and, and fall into form. Absolutely. Well, that's why I, I think of education as, as a form of broadening the imagel, imaginal possibilities, the image possibilities by broadening them. The German word for imagination is Einbildungskraft, that means literally the power of building or creating an image. So mm -hmm. If I come from a culturally limited or ego-bound um, reality, that I'm not capable of understanding something larger than that. That's why people have such culture shock when they run into other cultures or the changing values and, and so forth. Um, and, and underneath all of that, you see, as, as uh, Blake pointed out, he said, it's imagination's our highest faculty, not reason. Right. Because imagination is the power and capacity to broaden the range of possibilities. Um, the German word for continuing education is Fortbildung. That means strengthening or continuing the imaging process. And that means you get new and 
larger and a wider range of images available to you, which increases your psychological and therefore ultimately prof professional uh, range of possibilities. Now, to give you a quick example, both Shelley in the 1818-20s period and Schopenhauer writing about 30 years later in Germany asked this question, how is it that we can escape our own narcissistic sack of skin and, and, and feel the experience of another, to feel sympathy or empathy or compassion? And both of them said it was the power of the imagination. A person with a stunted or limited imagination is not able to image his or her way into the experience of another. But you see, by way of the uh, power of imagination, we can experience what another person might be feeling. And that's what produces empathy. And both of them said that's the secret of ethics, not rules, but the capacity to imagine. And that's why, for example, if I see a play like Hamlet, I, I realize as I, you know, imagine my experience in, in sort of dramatized form, as I see this from 1604, um, I realize everybody has a Hamlet problem and how he's blocked by it and how he, how he ultimately has to deal with it. This is, this is instructive to all of us. I mean, the difference between us and Hamlet is the poor guy has to keep saying the same thing every time he goes out on the stage because he's limited by his script. We're not. We can include Hamlet in the range of our possibilities. I can actually talk about a Hamlet complex. Where does it show up in my life or your life or someone else's life? You know, when he says, till resolution is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought and lose the name of action. There you have a perfect description in the 17th century of what a complex is. You intend to do something, but for reasons you don't know, you can't do it. And in that moment, you realize there's the interference coming from the unconscious. And of course, there have been literally tons of books written about why is Hamlet blocked? What is his problem? And has provided a livelihood for scholars, certainly. And the truth is, we all have a place in our life where, despite knowing what we should be doing, we don't do it. And therein is, is really the question of what's going on in the unconscious and so forth. So seeing Shakespeare's representation of this imaginal character uh, gives me images that enlarge my capacity to understand and see my own life. And that's sort of the, in addition to the aesthetic pleasure, is the, you know, the practical payoff of that kind of learning. I have a larger life. I have a larger library internally to draw from in understanding the world and myself. As we began to move into Iraq, back when I lived in Houston, I wrote a short piece, which I never published anywhere, on, on what Thucydides had to say about the Athenians moving on the island of Milos. And uh, the parallels were extraordinary. And, and the consequences were eminently predictable. It's like, you know, could the White House have learned from Thucydides? Absolutely. Did they learn from Thucydides? No. And that's why we're still in that mess in that part of the world. Where, uh, where do Kant and Nietzsche fit into this, the idea of reason and imagination? Well, I think for Kant, is uh, it was the most important philosopher for, for Jung because Kant, in a, in a way 
ended metaphysics, that is to say, the effort to speculate on the nature of the ultimately real, but he made psychology necessary. He said, we don't experience things as they are. What we experience is our experience of things as they are. There's a big difference. And therefore, in some way, we have to pay more attention to the nature of our cognitive and emotional and psychological processes in order to construct a provisional understanding of a world that truly lies outside of us and is mysterious and will never be known. He said, if, if you wear blue spectacles, you'll see a blue world with only blue choices. And we all have these psychological and physiological and cultural limitations that don't say anything about the nature of the world. The world's a mystery. The other is a mystery. But we, we have to explore how we internalize that experience. Uh, and, and, of course, Nietzsche himself was a person who, more than anything else, uh, was a kind of smasher of idols. You know, when, when he said God is dead in, in the 1860s, he wasn't making a theological comment or even a sociological comment. He was making a psychological comment. He was saying for most people, the God image in their life was not functioning as a point of entry into mystery, was not energizing their lives. It was something that was conventionalized, had produced routinized behavior, routinized responses, etc., uh, etc., et and, and if anything, was a deadener to the spirit rather than something that quickened the spirit and, and so forth, which is why he said, I could only believe in a dancing God meaning, uh, uh, you know, images that somehow vitalized one's, um, you know, spirit intrapsychically rather than deadened it. I'm just absorbing that. I, I think that, um, I don't know, we're at such a tough time right now uh, in our world. I think about the the shooting that just happened in San Antonio and you know this thing with uh, uh, Weinstein and the 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 feminine uh, women. The I, I can't imagine a, a larger call or a more more important call for us to reconnect with our our own sense of imagination. And and I I guess what what this brings up. You you mentioned it earlier, but I, I you mentioned ethics in a kind of a different frame. Um, you were connecting <laughs> ethics with imagination. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Would you talk about that for a sec? Well, again, if, if I am stunted in my capacity to imagine, then I can't see you as a person with your own autonomy. I can't see you as a person with your own needs and legitimate rights and so forth. So therefore, I could rationalize to myself to be a predator vis-a-vis -vis you. I would not, if to use the cliche, feel your pain. Um, and, and we know that genuine sociopaths and narcissists are people who do not experience remorse, do not experience um, the suffering of the other person. And therefore, they can do what they want strictly out of their self-interest and with no sense of, of um, accountability for it. So, you know, their, their conditions are profoundly limited when it comes to the imagination. It seems to me we're playing around with these... Um this duality of reason and imagination are those opposites do you frame those as opposites 
Not at all. No, no. Now, the uh, reason comes from the Latin verb ratio, and it means to to measure. So there's there's reasoning has the capacity to to sort of take things apart and address what what how they're formed, what they mean, what their consequences are, and that's useful and important. There there's a place for imagination and reason to to work together. I mean. To, to sort of image the possibilities. Um, I remember when I worked at the Young Center, we would often, as we were planning an event, ask ourselves, now, what is it we're forgetting? Now, by definition, we didn't know the answer to that question, but simply by using a rational approach to that problem, we often came, oh, we forgot who transports the speaker from here to here in our agenda or something like that, or who's getting the person at the airport. I mean, it, it was a, a, a sort of, provocative question that allowed us to sort of re-examine from a different imaginal perspective the, the logistical details of planning the visit of a speaker and so forth. So uh, again, I, I think they're not opposed. Uh, they can be oppositional, that's for sure. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Blake was one of the critics, as you pointed mm-hmm. out, of the excessive sort of uh, emphasis upon reason and and the whole so-called romantic revolt was saying but what of the heart you know we've heard much of the head here and of course the age of reason so-called wasn't an, an age that was reasonable or rational it was an age that was protesting the brutal excesses of the religious wars and and the bigotry and the oppression of tyrants and one of the great romantic revolts was called the american revolution you know and that was that was led by romantic visionaries, basically, and um, you know every every age in some way responds to the one sidedness of the age that preceded it. So um, you know it's not that in the age of reason people went around being reasonable. I'm just saying that from thoughtful people saying the only stay we have against excess and against madness and against absolutism is is the balancing power of reason. So we need to to use it. And they're certainly right about that. But, you know, as Pascal said two centuries earlier, the heart has reason that reason knows not. So one also has to pay attention to the role of affect and, and the fact that affect is generated by the psyche, not by ego. How do you define that? I, I meant to circle back on that ego. Yeah. The ego is simply our word. I mean, too often people hear that as egotism or egocentrism or something like that. The ego is simply the narrow pinprick of consciousness that I have at any given moment. It's who I think I am at the moment. Um, and, and the ego is very, very um, tiny. And I've often said it's a kind of you know, small disk floating on a huge ir- iridescent ocean. You know, and yet because of its finitude vis-a-vis the unconscious, it arrogates to itself powers that it doesn't really have. Like I'm in charge of my life. I know who I am. I'm making proper choices. And life is always reminding us, oh, you don't have a clue. And, um, you know, history and experience will tell us how often there were other forces than the powers of ego at the time. At the same time. We need ego consciousness to turn the the shower, you know, hotter or colder in the morning, to know how to use a car, to how to drive to work. It gives us intentionality. It gives us um, the powers of choice. It gives us um, accountability because we have consciousness. 
presumably, and, and it gives us uh, continuity, and we can bind our days together. So ego consciousness is, as Jung said, one complex among many. They called it the central complex of consciousness. But again, it's not that the ego is the problem, it's when it's inflated that it arrogates to itself powers it doesn't really have. You know, and I never know enough to know enough, even though daily I'm obliged to make choices. But the moment I think I really know enough and I'm really in charge are often the times when I'm in the grip of a very powerful complex, as history is constantly telling us. Why is it that, um, so ego, self from a Jungian lens, head and heart, good and evil, why do we see duality? Why do things, what, what is, I, I heard you say multiplicity, um, but so often yep. we come down to this kind of dual nature. What, what is that? Because I think the ego has an inherent difficulty of containing opposites. And we tend to split between good and bad. You know, good and bad are not necessarily categories that nature observes, you know, when Jaws wants to eat my leg, he's not being a bad fish, he's just being a fishy fish, he's doing what fish do, he's hungry, he wants to eat, all right, but my ego separates myself from nature, and it says bad fish, and we, we have that attitude towards something like mortality, which is, after all, simply the carrying out of the natural consequences of our mortal nature, you know, death is not wrong or evil death is simply a problem for for the limits of ego consciousness it's not a problem for nature or divinity so it's, it's the ego's problem it has trouble with the tension of opposites so it tends to split and it tend that's why in the last since world war ii the only portions of the religious spectrum that have grown have been fundamentalism whether eastern or western fundamentalism it's because the rapidity of change and the deconstruction of all the fixed values of the past has been uh, has introduced the toxin of anxiety and ambiguity into the body politic, and so the ego rigidifies and tries to go back to a time of greater certainty. And with that greater certainty, its mm -hmm. its yeah. emotional distresses are assuaged temporarily. But it's a, it's a pretty pathetic form of dealing with the world, ultimately, because the world is continuously undermining, you know, the certainties of the past. Well, I certainly see that anxiety in people. I mean, we're, uh, we all do, right? We're the clinging, uh, clinging for answers, clinging for, um, mm -hmm. for certainty. And I think that gets us to, um, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, the idea of addiction, how do you frame addiction? Well, addictions are anxiety management systems. That is to say, they are a behavior that becomes routinized and ritualized because there is some distress in one's life that one seeks to uh, lower through a certain kind of behavior. So I, I don't smoke, for example. But let's say I'm anxious in talking to you, um, and I could pick up a cigarette and smoke it, not even realize that's what I'm doing, because somewhere in my history I had done that act and I felt the effect of nicotine and whatever other chemicals are there, plus the ritual of the act itself, as somehow relaxing me. So I, I then, if, if, if it made me ill and made me throw up, 
chances are I wouldn't have, <laughs> you know, taken a cigarette. But the point is we, we gravitate towards behaviors that seem to assuage, at least for a while, the distress that, that the ego consciousness is feeling. And if it's not successful, we don't do that. We find another one. And, and the problem is, as, while that seems to be a rational technique to do, it's, it's stress management, if you will, um, it begins to have its own consequences, um, you know, like lung disease, let's say, um, or, uh, and or it leads to other consequences in your life and, and it begins to own you. And, and when the rich, when the addiction owns you, then you're, you know, a prisoner of your own management system. That's the problem. And you've lost your choice, your freedom, your autonomy. That's the first step is in all the programs is the acknowledgement that my management system now controls me. I'm not in control of my life. It controls me, which is, you know, a terrifying confession because it means all the effort I've made um, has just dug the hole deeper for me. And I can't, I can't continue to perpetuate this. Well, well, a system I think collectively that is um, is falling to pieces is the patriarchy, and I think that is an addictive, uh, an addictive system. If it's if it's framed in that way, there's an addiction in regard to power, right? Wait, of course, of course. you wrote about um, a book that I recommend to to men all the time, your book uh, Under Saturn's Shadow. H how did that project come to be for you? Well, actually, I got drafted into it. Um, my good friend, Guy Corneau, who, who just passed away this past year, sadly, had written a book on fathers and sons, and we were going to have him in uh, speak in, in uh, Philadelphia. And someone said, well, before he comes, since we hadn't had any programs on the psychology of men, we'd have plenty on the psychology of women, um, why don't you do a program based on you know, men's issues, whatever they might be, as if they didn't exist, um, and it'll you know, help prepare us for, for Guy Corneau's visit. So I spoke the week before. It was a two-part series. And so I sat down, and I found myself uncharacteristically resisting preparing for it. And it got to the point where I was down to near the last weekend, and I remember saying to myself, what would you say to someone else who brought you this problem? I would say, well, where there's resistance, there's anxiety. What's the anxiety about? And at that point, I, I had a voice in me, so to speak, that said, but we don't talk about that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why don't we talk about it? And, and the response was, because it's a secret. So I thought, well, you know, that's really then the necessary point of entrance, and that is to start talking about male secrets. And so the book is organized around eight male secrets, and uh, it, it was meant to tell secrets that men carry themselves most of their lives in isolation. I've had so many men write to me from different parts of the world because the Internet makes that possible today and saying, I always thought there was wrong, something wrong with me when I thought or felt this way or had this experience. And, and, you know, because men don't tend to talk to each other about the emotional issues that matter, um, they carry their lives in silence and shame most of the time. So the, um, um, 
dilemma there is, of course, this terrible, horrible isolation, psychological isolation, which is one reason why they're so uh, troubled in their relationships with others and, and another reason why they're so commonly caught in forms of self-medication. Yeah, and, and such domination. Yeah, one of the ways I put this with women's groups when they've asked me to talk about men's life is imagine three things. Now, here's an example of use of imagination. You think of men as strange, weird creatures because they do strange, weird things, and you're right. But imagine three things. One, that your close friends, the people, speaking of women now, your, the, the women you talk to about your, your marriage, your body, your worries about your children, those kinds of conversations are gone for life. Those people are gone. You'll never see them again. Secondly, your link to whatever your source of guidance is within your psyche or your soul, call it your intuition, call it your instinct, whatever you want to call it, your inner voice, that's severed forever. Thirdly, your worth as a human being will largely depend on your capacity to be productive in areas of competition that have been established by total strangers. And if you can imagine those three things, then you have a beginning of an inkling of what it means to be a man. And most women who pay attention to that and make that imaginative leap think, oh, how horrible, how horrible, I had no idea. And they say, what can I do to help? The answer is nothing. Men have to deal with this themselves. Yeah. We sure do. Well said, Jim. That, that uh, strikes a chord. <laughs> if you were teaching a class, the room would be silent. <laughs> except, except it's just me. So, it's supposed, it's well, supposed I, to be. Yeah. We need. We need to experience, even suffer the gravity of that as a deformation of the human soul. No wonder those lives are violent when their souls are deformed. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if I, where I heard this, but um, it's men's lives are defined in the negative spaces. And what I mean by that is that uh, I think 2015 was the first year that a, a masculinity studies... A degree was offered in the humanities and mm -hmm. so so men have never had some there's never we men especially the you know this white male has really defined himself by others not by himself yeah and that's i that's i had a man who was the dean of a college um it was a, a an african-american college and he looked at me and i was talking to him about how i work with a lot of men and he, he, we had just met each other and he leaned over to me and put his big hand on my arm and said, please do something about the wound in the white man. And it touched me so deeply. And I, there really is such a wound of inferiority yep. and fear and aimlessness. Yep. Uh, and it, it, it goes deep. And I think that all of us have been affected by that. And therefore, what do they do? Spend their time with video games? Um, making money, right? Uh, Self-medicating. Yeah, yeah. So you you said that uh, to me. I love this line, and I I, I I tip my hat to you because the the um, 
the meaning of this term I, I included in my work, um, seeking a surrogate. That language has given me such a deeper understanding of that process that you're talking about that. When we seek, we, the way we said it in my, in my dissertation was when one seeks a secular surrogate. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. I think for, for this, you know, our offices and our inner worlds are populated with, um, with surrogates for being seen, for being felt, for being heard, for being loved. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we go to the, another 14 minutes? Is that okay? Okay. Yeah. Do you have, okay. Go ahead. I, the, the thing I'm, uh, the two things that I want to get into here is the, you, another one of your books that I, I liked very much was Why Good People Do Bad Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and knowing you a little bit, I, what was the title? What was your working title for that book? Yeah, that was the publisher's title, and I hate the title. Um, my title was simply Dark Selves. And it was um, really a reference to so many other clusters of energy in our psyche that are there and are operational of which we're not aware. So I call it dark selves. In the same way they talk about dark money and electoral campaigns and so forth today, there are dark selves at work. Small s with the selves. Yes. So what was, what'd you discover? I think so much of writing a book is not only about a kind of regurgitating information like I certainly thought it was when I started writing, like, oh, I need to read a lot of stuff and you know, kind of put it all into the paper. And what I found through a very difficult process was that I had to actually think uh, sure. and, and, and discover what I was, what I was thinking. Um, so what, yeah. what did you discover through that process of writing that book? Well, I think it was something that was not discovered but reinforced was the importance of emphasizing the shadow is not synonymous with evil, though evil can come from the shadow, that's for sure. Um, the shadow represents those parts of ourselves, our own personalities, or our organizations, however beneficent their purpose, um, that when we bring them fully into consciousness, we find troubling, inconsistent with our values, um, contrary to what we ask of ourselves and others, um, undermining our intentions, etc., etc., etc. Now, having said that, I, I said earlier in this discussion, uh, the biggest shadow, again, is not so, so much that we're evil, but that we live such small lives. And what that's really saying is the necessity of adaptation and the magnitude of, of life that we are somehow asked to take on is so intimidating that we choose, you know, very tiny existences, relatively speaking, uh, psychologically speaking, um, it, as, as a protective mechanism. So, I mean, that's a shadow because what is, what is threatening or contradictory in our awareness then is how I'm also car- called to a larger manifestation of being in this world than the one I'm living. And, and that's evil only in the sense that it's a violation of why I'm here. You know, why is nature or divinity labor to bring me here to live such a tiny life? psychologically speaking. I'm not talking about in terms of how I'm seen by the world, but I'm right. talking about how I'm seen by my own soul. When you say a term like that, soul, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, soul is, in a sense, the word that we use to talk about the fact that this animal is a meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are an animal. 
Um, but this particular animal, um, you know, most animals are, you know, d don't have anxiety. They don't have guilt. They, they don't have various range of emotions we have as far as we know. Um, they have fear. They fear, fear predators. They fear fire. They fear us, etc. But, but they're not able to sort of separate themselves from themselves unless they've had to adapt to circumstances like living with Houston, humans and so forth. But the, the important point here is that, that soul is simply a way of saying this animal suffers, disconnects from meaning. This animal is a meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animal. And it's a symbol-making animal because symbols and metaphors allow us to try to talk about or stand in relationship that to that which cannot be talked about, that which cannot be understood. An example is meaning. What do we mean when we talk about beauty? What do we mean if we use the word God? What do we mean when we talk about the nature of anything? We're swimming in mystery. But we have the resources and the need to somehow stand in some approximate relationship to that mystery. You know, it's um, Aristotle begins his book, The Metaphysics, you know, almost three millennia ago. All humans by nature desire to know. He said by nature, right? And that nature is what in some way gives us, you know, our soul. And if we don't learn, you know, something in us suffers. I had a guy. Uh, the Jung Center here did a did a talk with uh, Emily Esfahani Smith on on meaning. She's written this book on meaning. I think it was quite good. And a guy at the end of it, because one of her pillars of um, of meaning is transcendence. And in inevitably, this guy stands up and says, "Look, how, how, what about the atheist? Where does the atheist find meaning? What do you say mm -hmm. to that?" Well, transcendence doesn't. <laughs> I mean, too often people, again, see that word out of their institutional life. Right. Um, dealing with dreams is an encounter with a transcendent reality. I, as an ego consciousness, do not make up my dreams, nor do you. I, they're, they're, they're from some autonomous, mysterious process within myself. And, and just to pay attention to a dream or a symptom, also coming out of the autonomy of the psyche, is to, to pay respect to the, the, that which is transcendent ordinary consciousness. You know, in, in certain group experiences, um, in, in the encounter with beauty, in the encounter with terror, we have transcendent encounters. We're, we're, we're surrounded by transcendence. Anything that lifts us out of the isolation of ordinary ego consciousness into a sense of that vertical dimension I was talking about earlier or participation in the other is a transcendent encounter. So an atheist doesn't need to have a God image to, to have transcendence. He or she is, is, is surrounded by transcendent uh, summonses all the time. I, I guess my, my struggle sometimes with, um, I have a dear friend of mine who I always joke with her that she's the most religious atheist I know. Uh, she's a behavioral neuroscientist who creates all kinds of <laughs> religious-based processes in her life. And, and I, I think sometimes the, the idea of atheism, it, 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 it operates on the literal level. So, sure. so often I hear people's critique of religion. They're, they're essentially critiquing literalism. 
and, and not, right. not something deeper. And I, I, it becomes yeah. a circular argument because then, you know, the literalist offers up their literalist argument and then the, you know, the, um, so really, I, I, I think what we're struggling with here is literalism and not some kind of organized in, in, tradition. In many ways, yes. And it's kind of like the, the big guy in the sky who's watching and the atheist has every right to laugh at that. And, and yet, it's the moment people begin to think about the transcendent, they start personifying it. And they often see it through the lens of their parent-child relationship. So, you know, Freud's old critique has a great deal of value here. And I always say to people, you know, see if your spirituality can survive the, the Freud test. You know, is it something more than wishing for the, the great parent who's going to take care of you and make your, your life, you know, pass <laughs> easy? I like that. Or is it is it is it a search for immortality in the face of, of your finitude and those sorts of things? And if you can look at those issues in straight on and say, and yeah, it's it's more, far more than that, then that's fine. You're welcome to it, you know. But it, you really have to be honest with yourself in passing the Freud test to start with. Now, Freud went too far throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater and saying, you know, that religion itself was a neurotic symptom. And Jung rightly, I think, critiqued that profoundly, particularly in his book, Symbols of Transformation in 1912, in which he, you know, demonstrated, again, that the psyche is teleological, it's purposeful, it's yeah. seeking connection, it's seeking meaning, it's seeking purpose, and that's not neurotic, that is our most natural affinity. It takes us back to my earlier statement about how important education's always been in my life. Because for me, that was the vehicle for the journey, the vehicle for uh, enlargement in ways that um, were inherently challenging and satisfying to me. Well, um, I think it's that's a perfect place to close. In in that you you may not realize it, but we're we're closing at least this chapter where you and I began with symbols of transformation. Yeah, I, um, I do. <laughs> I, I called <laughs> I called Sean um, during that class uh, and I, I said oh man what have I done I'm I'm reading this I don't understand a word of this book I, I you know and he he, he wisely um, says you know just hang in there I'm glad I did Jim and I'm glad that um, you've you've been so involved in my education well it's a privilege John and I'm glad you stuck it out too <laughs> it was worth. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to uh, to flee a few times, but I'm I'm glad I did. All right. Control.